0: Welcome to the C-Word, the Conservators podcast. Today we're talking about thinking big. I'm Jenna Mathiasen, an objects conservator based in South Yorkshire.
1: And I'm Chloe Rumsey, an objects conservator based in Greater Manchester.
0: Hello, hello. Today we've got a special guest host in the studio. Would you like to introduce yourself?
2: Hello both. I'm Simon Stevens and I'm an objects conservator for the Science Museum Group based in Wiltshire.
0: Nice. Hi. Hi. I hate both. And we've just made you eat pizza with us, so FYI, we do bribe all guest
2: hosts. <laughs> yeah.
0: And if you're willing to come to my house, then you may be fed either fish and chips or pizza. <laughs> it
2: is your choice. Yeah, C word fuel pizza. Yes. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So, anyway, today we're going to talk about
1: big stuff
0: huge big stuff. things. <laughs> what's huge? What's
2: big?
1: So, I suppose I think of big stuff as being like larger than two people can live together.
2: I would say larger than one person.
1: Oh, do you add than one
2: person's uh, mm-hmm. capability to pick up? Okay.
1: Mm. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah. So what's manual handling person's weight lifting capabilities?
1: Oh, is say something like two twenty?
2: Twenty five kilograms, something like that. Twenty five? <laughs> we'll
1: wait,
0: wait, wait, wait. Is this like how much we can lift as human beings or what? Or, yeah, or... How much it's
2: By advisable. Health and Safety Act to yeah. be able to lift.
0: Oh, nice. Okay. So I think I have had some manual handling training at some point, but it wasn't that specific. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I struggle with 15, to be honest, <laughs> because I'm not that strong. I think I'm, I'm stubborn, not bits. strong. <laughs> and those are on good manual handling <laughs> things.
1: <laughs> like, it tends to be along the lines of... Science and industry and
2: okay, yeah, that so, kind mm-hmm. of...
0: Yeah. Okay, because I'm trying to envisage what kind of oversized collections of actually launch. are. For me, I would think, obviously, like, industrial bits and bobs, mm-hmm. like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> bits of equipment and that sort of thing, like... But then we've also got the equipment side, where it's, like, actual scientific equipment and bit, bits of the first computer, which is huge, and, you know, like...
2: Yeah, things like you Pegasus some, Engine, but then... We also have we have vehicles, uh, aircraft.
1: Yeah, I
0: was going to say transport
2: Deports, section transport of that. Section. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Shall we get you, Simon, to talk about your experience and what led you to the Science Museum group at Roughton?
2: Yeah, I wouldn't call myself a large objects conservator. I kind of just fell into that for for my own natural interests. <laughs> so previously, before conservation, I was tinker with bikes and cars quite a lot. And in Cardiff, my internship was based in Imperial War Museums, so where I helped with a large oh, object nice. decant for the transformation.
0: <laughs> Very nice.
2: Yeah. So that really probably piqued my interests in the conservation of large objects then. And shortly after that internship, I randomly met a fellow in a pub who had <laughs> As a museum, well, he <laughs> well, just overheard my Imperial War Museum chat to... At some of the conservators, and uh, he approached me and said, Oh, I've got a tank museum. So I went off. Casual? Yeah. Yeah. And would I like to help with him? So it was uh, mainly large objects and working objects there.
1: I mean,
0: we're talking actual tanks.
2: Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Actual tanks. Nice. And it was more of a private collection. Sure. Rather yeah. than a museum, but he had school days there. Oh. So I wo- worked there for a couple of years until I finished my. Degree and then I went up to National Museum of Scotland's Museum of Flight. I worked there for a few years, oh, and that thing things got really big then. So, <laughs> wow, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're talking yeah, Concorde, yeah. Uh, uh, Vulcan bombers. From there onwards, I've started working from the Science Museum back in 2016. Nice, and yeah, just kind of been more interested in the larger objects of things and the difficulties they kind of pose. Yeah, for conservation and yeah, logistics
0: objects conservation scaled up massively Mm. yeah
1: but you've also got experience as a mechanic haven't you which you started off with and that's a that's that's an area of the discussion i'd like to get into a bit later that the the other skills that are required Mm -hmm. or the other things that you need to be aware of that isn't just conservation
2: yeah um yeah i did um i was a bit of an amateur mechanic Mm -hmm. and it certainly has helped i do like tinkering (laughs) with objects so i've got no qualms in some taking apart and that's why where I'm working at the moment is Mm. great because it's industrial machinery and science collections Mm. so yeah there's quite a lot of uh, fettling and taking things apart for treatment and stuff like that so yeah
0: i love that because that sounds terrifying from my point of view whereas if i'm forced to take anything apart i am always living in fear of not being able to put it back together Mm -hmm. that is just one of my innate fears of
1: ah shit i'm the same yeah yeah Yeah, i'm the same so i've also worked at as you know the Mm. science and industry museum i so i've you know got various experience with working with large objects but yeah would never have had the confidence to take something apart. I got to the point of being able to identify the different parts of various mechanical and yeah. industrial bits of machinery and the kind of things like oil reservoirs and stuff yeah. like that, the things that you see that you don't necessarily know how to identify if you're not familiar with the stuff. But I wouldn't have taken it apart.
2: I suppose I'm fortunate I had the ability to, when I was growing up with my cars, just to go, oh, there's something slightly wrong with the engine. And... half a day later it'd be in bits on the floor and go (laughs) oh i have to get it back together again i suppose it's it's a lifetime of practice in some ways yeah yeah so i would then just figure out a way how to Mm. to do it but i love like documenting and trying to figure out how things go back together and yeah it really does help with
0: so for uh, some of these things i guess that you might actually have really good documentation to begin with because if these things were constructed in the modern era they might have blueprints and stuff like that right
2: yeah absolutely vital with most of our objects have technical files oh thank god so, for that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> which uh, yeah <laughs> i del- delve into quite a lot and yeah they if i need to be i need to get into an object i will request that and you know see how it comes apart
0: yeah amazing
2: but yeah they are large objects so i wouldn't necessarily always be able to uh, afford the time to be able to take it all apart and things Yeah, of like course. That. Yeah. So, yeah see what Significance is, yeah, of if it's going on display, was it form or function? Well, I would like to actually what I would like to preserve in that respect. So, yeah, I would yeah. you have to do that with large objects, I think, because some of them I couldn't spend 400 hours on one thing, I just simply don't have the time, yeah, no, sure. So, but I could easily could. You can, I have done it in the past where I have been able to, like, up in Museum of Flight, I've been uh, preparing uh, aircraft there. And I think it was up to 500 hours I was spent on paint consolidation of about five aircraft. Oh, my aircraft. God. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. I was in preparation for them to come out of the hangars and go into temporary storage. They needed to be able to be moved, so without any loss of further loss of paint. Wow. And then also withstand uncontrolled environmental conditions for yeah, sure. a period of a few months. So, yeah, it was... Yeah, five hundred hours, upside down underneath an airplane, (laughs) (laughs) injecting objects to it. Then Uh, no, no, just yeah, was it scaffolding? Yeah, I can go up and down on amazing. So injecting. I mean, I'm afraid of heights,
0: so I mean that's not a great start (laughs) to any of this, right? (laughs) Like, I'm not happy if I have to go up on scaffolding at all.
2: (laughs) Ah, yeah. So another thing with large objects is yeah.
0: you, you, might, have, you find, might have to go up, yeah. some,
2: you know, up, to, uh, <laughs> up to the height of them. So. Yeah,
0: that's fair enough, really. <laughs> yeah. But how often would you say that you kind of need to conserve the inside mechanical bits that aren't necessarily being seen
2: mm-hmm.
0: for something to go on display, for example? Because if it's part of what you're trying to preserve, yeah. but it might not be something that's seen to the public, Like, how often is that a really important bit? Just out of curiosity...
2: It does depend on if it came into the museum still working mm. or still mechanically moving. I would definitely try to preserve that as much as possible, even if it's just a static display. When you strip down an object, find out it's, it could easily be put back into working condition. I wouldn't want to just move it into um, on display and let that then corrode. So it doesn't take priority. So I say...
0: Do what you can. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah. And that is kind of what we um, our remit is with displays and things yeah. like that. So yeah, I don't spend too much time. But say if it was a a vehicle that's come in a recently acquisitioned vehicle, I would go through all hazard checks, and then procedure would then follow would be to drain oils, replace them with sort of.
0: What are your hazard checks like?
2: Hazard checks very <laughs> thorough <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to uh, particularly transport. They would we I would have a basically i would go through that and start off with say i say talk about an aircraft then it'll be the dates dates that it would be manufactured and then see whether there's asbestos if it was military might still have asbestos in it check for radioactive components mm, tasty yeah <laughs> and sort of pressurised. Gases, Ooh. yeah, hydraulics, corrosive fluids, Ooh. explosives, yeah. There's an endless list. The list I can't,
1: goes
2: on. I don't even look at. <laughs> oh god. There's things I probably would miss, but yeah. Oh god. When I'm going through it, and then depending on what I've flagged from there, mm. usually getting in the specialists, especially when it comes to explosives. So, sort of um, ejection seats and. Canopies, oh,
1: yeah. of course,
0: and
2: then yeah, so <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, because in my head I was thinking, what could possibly be explosive? Oh, I yeah. see, yeah, because you yeah. need to detonate that. Oh, yeah,
2: mm. of course. Airliners will have the um oxygen tanks in which, you yeah, of know, course. drop down from you mm. from above, uh, those have to be removed and. Yeah, degassed. Yeah, so it's Love it. <laughs>
1: That's yeah. something interesting about industrial, scientific and transport collections that aren't I suppose aren't necessarily just about large objects but are so so much more commonly found in large, large objects. Mm. That of course you've got your object and every part of the object is a valuable and a p- important original component of the object. But also, there's some things that could literally kill you just <laughs> <Yeah>. by accident. <laughs>
2: yeah, the inherent nature of it being yeah. a large object. Yeah, its weight. Yeah, its weight distribution whether it's st- st- uh, still stable structurally, mm. wow. intact. Yeah, yeah. It, it's. Uh,
1: so by it's nature, a- your your intervention has to be significantly more interventive than just I have this lacquered box kind mm-hmm. of thing I am cleaning it and putting it in store you've got to take bits away from it and replace oils and like, yeah. structurally support areas that could snap off and kill someone
2: yeah that then would um, fall into the what the object's inten- uh, intention is yeah. so yeah if it was to go on display mm-hmm. or if it was to go on to be used uh, as a working object yeah again which um, large objects are usually considered good candidates for, mm-hmm. uh, then, yeah, you would have to yeah, comply with he- modern health and sa- safety um, laws and yeah, general health and safety for your own sake as well. And the Science Museum has really good um, hazard and collections training, which no,
1: which really makes
0: sense. No, really.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Does that change your attitude if you've got objects that used to be working? and Mm. so have been treated and maintained as in replacement bits. Does that change your attitude to the conservation of the object, or do you just take it as, I'm just maintaining this in the same way, even though some of the bits aren't original?
2: Well, if the object has been used and has been like a working object, which Mm -hmm. throughout its life, or a working thing throughout its life, and those modifications have occurred through its life, yeah, I would preserve those. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't... When it comes to that kind of stuff, I would rather do minimal intervention Yeah, and preserve the fabric of what's... how the object existing. is coming existing, yeah. yeah.
0: Do you keep a lot of space and stuff like that? It sounds like an insane question, but it's one mm-hmm. that I asked once when we went to the Fleet Air Arm Museum, which I think we talked briefly about in the military episode that we did. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I
2: like the Fleet Air Arm Museum. Yeah. Oh,
0: it's amazing. Very... I love
2: David Morris.
0: Oh, yeah, because they basically had, like, obviously they have loads of planes, and then they also had, like, Mm. a whole um, store full of bits. Yeah. And that was very much so that they could replace bits as necessary on the planes. Yeah. And I just thought that was really interesting that they had kind of a, not a leftover section, but a bits section, where it's just, like, almost like a hardware store, where you you can go and
2: and get the the
0: appropriate material for that plane. Yeah, like you would
2: have in a mechanics. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. It was was, was very practical mm -hmm. like that. And like I was just kinda of curious like what your stance on it is. I mean I don't think either one is wrong or anything. It was more mm-hmm. of a I'm curious what 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 you guys do.
2: Mainly working on static objects. Yeah. Then I wouldn't replace I don't have a parts store unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. That would be amazing. <laughs> I could go and get bits and pieces yeah. from. If I do need to um kind of replace parts for structural reasons and that then I would always try and use the uh, originals so aircraft components uh, bolts and things mm-hmm. i would go to through an aircraft company and replace it with the necessary bolts uh, i would label those new parts yeah. as, uh, new replacement parts on stamp that into it so you can always tell there are kind of with um, new advancements in 3d printing now you can actually i've seen a few a Porsche uh, vintage Porsche dealership 3d printing uh, out of stock parts for old huh. Yeah, I mean, I thought if I wasn't able to find a part, or
0: that means that there was there could be a way for you to yeah. have it manufactured. That's so interesting. Yeah,
2: so they would kind yeah. of manufacture it. I think it's a plastic, yeah. metal, carbon fiber um, material. Cool. And is
1: that something that could run? It, uh, it, yes. Yeah, it yeah.
2: Yeah. It's structurally oh wow stable. So if you had to replace a structural part with it, it would
1: ah, so, nice.
2: And it would be three D printed. Three D printing exactly to the original specifications. So just like an OEM part should be. That's really cool. Amazing.
0: Yeah, that is really cool. Is that something so. that
1: you think could be like bought into the conservation fill?
0: I, I think now.
2: so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Is
1: it expensive?
2: Um, I mean, it can yeah, be cheap. Does yeah, yeah. <laughs> so start
1: getting involved? Yeah, it?
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> and also, but, like, that's a really specialist thing to do because it's not something you can mass produce. Because it's something a one-off that you need. That's true. You know, there, there's a lot. So much like conservation should cost because it's very specialist. I guess that should cost because it's very specialist. If you think about it, yeah, that's true.
2: It might annoy quite a few people in fact that that might actually be taking sort of older traditional skills out of the of course the loop. If um, Oh yeah, fabrication of certain parts. And,
0: yeah, that's yeah. a good point as
2: well. Yeah, yeah. that is a good point. I have a mixture of the both. Well, yeah, quite.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, quite. I suppose one of the things that Fleet Air Arm Museum, by the way, was that they had a lot of you know um, engineers, that so they then retrained yeah. to kind of have more of a conservation mentality as they worked on the planes, yeah. which I thought was a really excellent concept as a kind of way of keeping those skills in the profession. I suppose or like in, in welcoming those skills into. The profession but you know it it has a slightly different has to have a different approach when it's a large object or, you know, a yeah. vehicle or something. It, because, just like you say, it needs to be structurally safe and all that stuff. And it's it's an interesting thing that I talked to someone I know who does a lot of, like, sculpture and statues and architectural bits and bobs on buildings mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Again, a lot of scaffolding. A lot of scaffolding mm-hmm. and high-vis vests. Yes. <laughs> a lots of risk assessments. But she does a lot of stuff that's really, really hardcore. She does say that you do need something that's so much more hardcore than what you would normally introduce to say, you know, if you had a ceramic object, you would never put, like, this sort of epoxy on it. But because it's something that needs to be so structural, needs to be safe for the public and all that stuff, mm. it is what you use. Like, it might not be super reversible and it, it might be that it blends in really well, so it might be that it looks really restored as opposed to conserved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, like, it's just what you've got to do to make it safe. And I thought those were really interesting kind of dilemmas that, mm. like, I don't necessarily have in, have in my working practice, but is really interesting to hear about as people who work on much huger things.
2: Mm, yeah, well, I, my go-to stuff can usually be more proprietary brands of sort of corrosion inhibitors, mm-hmm. and yeah. coating systems, simply because of the the nature of the object. If it's going outside, or what kind of conditions yeah. it's going to be in, the, something where like paraloid B 72 is just not going to cut it. Yeah. So, <laughs> what do yeah. you
1: use then? What are your conservation materials?
2: Um, for example, if I was sort of if it needs to be structural, mm. so my epoxies are. Mm-hmm. Um, epoxy putty right yeah so and i still go for araldite mm-hmm. 2020 yeah you, know, you, got, you got, yeah. corrosion inhibitors and rust converters mm-hmm. those are quite those are always in stock i'm doing several tests at the moment uh, to see if uh, what corrosion inhibitors would work best um what has an element of reversibility to them oh, okay and there's quite a lot of stuff is like a thick waxy coating yeah, yeah, yeah be like a how was it wax lacquer which looks nasty
1: so something that it's, essentially
2: prevents prevents any further corrosion stuff. yes yeah. yeah um yeah just trying to stop that corrosion cell mm. at the beginning um so i have found a few and i've just got a few coupons dotted around mm-hmm, the hangers yeah. <laughs> <and> I'll, <laughs> I'll continue to monitor them for for a while and see that and sounds exciting
1: can i jump back to something we mentioned just now Large objects on display. I spoke to Jim White, who is an object mounting and installation specialist at the Imperial War Museums. I really wanted to get him to... He he did say yes to an interview, but I've not been able to get in touch with him, um, unfortunately. And he did... So I met him at the Make It Float... Um, day of of talks um, in Norwich in September and his paper was amazing because he was basically talking about how to mount large aircraft and, like, you know, when you go into the Imperial War museums and there's mm. all the planes above you, that, essentially, he did that. Cool. And there are a number of different things that totally amazed me, like the fact that there's no kind of governmental red- regulations on the mounting of large objects in museums. So, like, yeah. there's nothing. It's totally insane. Um, like, weight <laughs> oh. <way> regulations <laughs> yeah. or checking regulations or anything like that. Oh, um
0: So, obviously, the... the f- I mean, I like my brain went two ways with that. One way was, why would the government care? And
1: the second one was... Wait, people are walking underneath it.
0: Exactly. <laughs> so immediately I was conflicted. <laughs>
1: exactly. So yeah, he was talking about basically what IWM does in order to ensure that the objects and the people are safe. And oh. there's a lot of building checks and object checks, and you know the the lines between the building and the object that's keeping it up. The, yeah. Those are checked as well, and it's really very thorough and. That's cool. I mean, that's checking. good. That yeah. pleases me. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly.
2: It's, it's. I mean, imagine it's really you'd good. have to have some mechanical or structural engineers to assess yeah. things about the yeah. aircraft. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can totally
0: see it like, yeah. being taken into account to like new builds and stuff. Like, If you know that you're going to put large things up yeah. on the walls, for example, or hanging from the ceiling, I'm thinking of, oh, there was an amazing article in Icon News recently, which was about these... Giant figureheads of ships, and they were all mm. going to be mounted in this oh, big hall. Yeah. yeah, but obviously, that's that's a new building being prepared yeah. for this, uh-huh. so like it's all being taken into account. Mm. It must be a, such a different ballpark to take a building that's already built and go, Look, we're going to
1: put a tank here. Why not? <laughs> uh, you know, like, mm, yeah. Whilst really cool, also <laughs> just terrifying. And stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that really struck me when I was working in uh, the Science and Industry Museum. We were decanting here- very great number of really really varied objects and we were working with museum object and art handling specialists um martin speed and their lifting contractor which was um jay mckenzie from from salisbury yeah
2: Yeah. jim or jimmy
1: yeah he have you worked with him yeah he's he's great i really enjoyed working with him and it was the the way that they thought about objects and lifting objects was amazing, and just the kind of the huge scale that you're looking at there. The, the, yeah. like the we moved an object that was six tons. I mean, if you've never moved large objects before, this will sound totally alien. But the huge crane, yes, the crane that we got it out of the building with also weighed it at the yeah. same time. That's and crazy. Cool. He was That's he was clever. looking at the object, going, I. Just don't know where it's keeping the weight. Where is where is the weight? How is this six tons? But it was, and it's you know that's the kind of
0: Oh, that's weird the
1: provision that you do when you pick when you they were taking picking up an object when they don't know the weight of it. It's, it's insane because you've got to allow for. Oh,
2: I would love to see something like that. Yeah, they do pose a huge logistical mm, nightmare yeah. challenge. But
0: also yeah. like coming at it from like somewhere having not ever worked anywhere where that's kind of something that's done regularly that kind of means that it's just so big and terrifying and unknown yeah. that it's just so strange to me to think that you can even pick that up like how oh, what <laughs> what do people do
2: yeah sometimes yeah you've got to take a, a leaf out of the industrial side of things and then also try and think a bit out of the box when I was in Museum of flight we had we were installing all the aircraft back into the uh, refurbished hangars and what had been where they decided to put all the aircraft was based on a 132 scale drawing of the hangar and then the curators dropping little 132 scale models of the aircraft into the little... First of <laughs> all, that's adorable. I mean, yeah, uh-huh. that, it was really... It looked amazing. <laughs> but then um, logistically, installing them into the positions that they had put them in.
1: Oh no. That's a bit uh, of a different
2: as beast. You've got, yeah, as you've yeah. only got like three points of uh, turning circle and uh, we're pushing it with tractors. Yeah. We had to think of how are we going to slide this two metres to the side and put the nose out. Uh, we actually had drilled holes into the fl- new new floor oh <laughs> to thought. put some mounting brackets. Uh, and then we rolled them uh, the wheels onto two Teflon sheets and used the turfers, so big ratchets, mm-hmm. to then slide it sort of sideways.
0: Oh my God.
2: And then get them off the teflon so it was it's a head scratching moment (laughs) to begin with but then because it was so easy to move then we can oh it needs to go another four millimeters this way Mm. (laughs) Uh, so it was actually quite a good system so i recommend that to anyone who's moving large stuff needs to go sideways teflon is your friend
0: (laughs) teflon is your friend you heard it here first folks
1: (laughs) that's amazing (laughs) Yeah it's the it's the inventiveness of object movement that mm. I really enjoyed when I was working with with large objects mm-hmm. and just using the situation around you and the just the lifting equipment itself is really interesting like car jacks and just it just goes it's all extremely heavy isn't it so you <laughs> yeah. you're doing large object lifting and some most of the time I couldn't even lift the equipment that was used for lifting the large objects.
2: Yeah, um I'm a fan of not really lifting anything. I'll get the machines to do
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
0: that's
2: fair enough. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Very lazy.
1: Step one of object handling,
0: though.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Just mechanize. <laughs> mechanize yeah. everything. Yeah, weight distributions fascinating as mm-hmm. well, isn't it? Because you can have hidden weight loading.
2: Yeah, yeah. Doing um always test lifting where we're moving stuff with mm. the forklifts. Yeah and that's always a scary moment <laughs> even if it's only an inch off the floor where, right. <laughs> where is that where is that weight distribution because it's oh, not crazy it's not like a big pallet of beans where you know a <laughs> centre <laughs> you know it could be right at the top over to yeah. the other side yeah. overhanging yeah have so you ever got scary. it
1: wrong and dropped something
2: uh I haven't no yeah. I've never dropped anything no oh <laughs> <fun>. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Simon's looking <laughs> smug <laughs> yeah <laughs>
1: I've dropped something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay. Um, (laughs) We were lifting a large lathe and even now we're not entirely sure what happened. We were lifting it on a forklift. It was stable. It was test lifted. It Mm. was by some foresight. I thought I'm not happy with this just going as Mm. it was. And I strapped it to the, the equipment and made sure there was nothing that could, you know, it couldn't fall off. Uh, even though it looked like it wouldn't go anywhere. We lifted, lifted, lifted. It moved uh, the length of a whole extremely long store. Totally fine. We needed to put it down in order to um, safely do something else. Lifted it, immediately it fell off. Mm. And it, there was yeah. there was no change whatsoever with anything that we did. By it fell off, obviously it didn't fall off because we'd strapped <laughs> it safely you to say, but it's <laughs> and strapped. we were all safe distances away and following all of the safety procedures. But, um, it, it just, it just went. And that yeah. was a case of, a new very heavy motor being strapped to the top being attached rather to the top of the object
2: okay Changing which, it's cha- of gravity. which changed
1: its center of gravity but what we didn't understand was how that had somehow how had that changed how did it mm-hmm. suddenly seem to be top heavy when before yeah. it just wasn't yeah. so i think the lesson i took out of that was number one always take extra precautions <laughs> <laughs> Fair. Even if you think that it won't go anywhere Fair. at all,
2: extra straps, extra
1: straps, and stay back. And yeah. well, you, well, I mean, I say wear your steel toe cap boots as if steel toe cap boots would have done anything. If <laughs> the Size had fallen on me, and also the solution that we found to that when it got to the point where we we didn't feel that we could lift it safely, um we got the uh, lifting contractor in to come and move it for us, and they did it in yeah. like half an
2: hour. It's terrifying yeah. when it is- when you do. I have to lift something of that, like, sheer size. Yeah. And, yeah, it can be a heart-in-your-mouth moment. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so.
1: I'd like to reference quickly um, a talk that we saw at Icon19 by Anna Schofield and she managed the movement of lifting various huge parts of the Mary Rose into interposition. Um, and her talk was essentially how to lift the ridiculously giant... I don't even remember which part of the boat it was, ship it was, sorry, but it was oh, yeah. one of the huge pieces. Was that the one which said you had to give it a little push at the end? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and exactly. the entire hall just went... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> um, conservators. Yeah, because conservators. And one of the things saying, oh, I wish I'd just cut it in half because it was it got to the point where she was worried about people yeah uh, life and limb yeah. And yeah, sort of. yeah yeah, and that's the one of the interesting things about moving large objects isn't it that you've yes of course the object is important <laughs> uh, yeah. but actually yeah, we just want to make sure the people are safe
0: We've, we were talking about mounting things and how cool that is mm-hmm. and something i really enjoyed was nigel larkin who is a natural history conservator uh, yeah. um Mm. did a talk about mounting a big whale skeleton I want to say like a huge huge thing mm-hmm. um, and working with the people who could actually weld something that could actually hold this and mm. suspend it beautifully mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in a museum setting which was just an amazing talk and if I can find a link to that I will also link to that because that was a really cool talk so um, I mean unsurprisingly even skeletons I mean especially dinosaurs mm-hmm. and stuff like that right are yeah. also huge things yeah, that need yes. mounting and there are and also dippies going it's on cool. tour obviously yeah so Dipping. you know yeah
1: I've realized that there's actually yeah. there is a lot of large stuff that isn't furniture paintings and, <laughs> and <laughs> stuff <history. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> source natural history people <laughs> we didn't forget you so when you're lifting large things regardless of whether it's dinosaurs or large yeah. engines yeah <laughs> sometimes you need help as we've talked about before
2: mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: What kind of help is available? Obviously, shout out to Jimmy McKenzie and
2: <laughs> <No. laughs>
1: Martin Speed who we've already mentioned. <laughs> uh,
2: most recently, we've had a few vehicle exhibitions or loans going out. So the 1888 Benz uh, has um, gone to the v and and I was really impressed by the um, transport they sent. So it was Cars Europe. They have uh, a truck that the whole back slides off so it allows you to take in a, a vehicle completely flat so there's no ramps there's no winches oh, so there's no pressure points on it it's uh and then it lifts it you, ma- you strap it all down then it lifts it onto the
0: ah so it kind of lifts like a tray
2: yeah like oh a my tray god that's just, amazing yeah i was really impressed with that so wow yeah just there specifically for mm-hmm. sort of supercars and things yeah. which don't have any towing points on them yeah of course uh, you can drag up a a large ramp
1: oh uh, i didn't i didn't even imagine that they wouldn't have towing points is that too like is that too practical for a supercar i mean yeah
0: i mean too ugly
1: uh, i suppose in theory you could drive
0: it on but then if it's not in a drivable condition then
2: for the um, driverless exhibition we had the citroen uh ds which went on display and when it's on, when it's working, the hydroelastic suspension pumps all the um, suspension components up, so it raises it off the ground. Oh, but of course... As it's not a working you've object, it's yeah. on the floor. Oh, yeah. So... What? Yeah. It's, it, well, it's about 70mm off the floor. Then we couldn't use ramps, so we then had to of use... Of course! specialist wheel clamps which then connect to a crane and oh then you precariously God. lift it off into wow. <laughs> you, you get specialists and but yeah it was um you know just learning curves you always mm. overcome these challenges yeah. Yeah, somehow <laughs> it has to be done
1: <laughs> i was really Amazing. amazed and i continue to be amazed how many large objects have been built into museum and gallery spaces mm-hmm. that they, obviously, it was a great idea at the time. That Yes, we want to have this like, part of electrical plant in your gallery. And so why not helicopter it in? Yeah. And now it's there the forever. And then build on top of it. And the, there's an example I'm thinking of. And the the options were essentially, how to get, how to remove this? The options were cut it up yeah. and take it out in pieces yeah. or leave it there forever and that's that's it's insane that we've yeah
0: <laughs>
2: it's insane
1: <laughs> ambitious but insane
0: and yeah maybe not the best forward thinking ever maybe
2: we have uh examples of that with good intentions where we've brought in aircraft into mm. the hangars and they've been in there for decades yeah and now the hangar doors don't open <gasps> oh, so, yeah. oh
1: no so,
0: so
2: you'd have you'd have to <laughs> take a situation a wall off. yeah yeah
1: can the doors so. be repaired, or would this be a case of somehow get the doors open, then move everything all at once?
2: Yeah, pretty much.
1: Wow. Yeah. Oh my so. God.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's crazy.
1: Which hanger is that? D3. Okay. <laughs> if
2: you know rotten. <laughs> <Nice. laughs>
1: well, we will all know rotten soon. <laughs> oh yes. Because <laughs> um, we have a special tour <laughs> from something that we recorded a couple of weeks ago. simon hello Corey. where are we
2: we're at the science museum in wroughton otherwise known as the national collection center now
1: that's a new name for it isn't
2: it yeah or ntc for short.
1: and what's this fancy car we've just got into
2: this is a hydrogen powered car which we'll be going around cycling today
1: it's got some big stickers on it science museum group stickers on it
2: yeah we'll stick it up <laughs>
1: So Simon has very kindly agreed to give me a tour, give us a tour of um, the Science Museum Group at Roughton Storage Site, which is their <laughs> large object store and soon to be the one collection storage facility for the Science Museum Group. And it's made up of lots of different buildings and lots of different spaces. And the stats and stuff we can we can ask Simon for later. But we'll be driving around in this. Fancy posh car Which emits only water um, And it's a lovely rainy day for it
2: yeah, uh, Welcome to Rawson we
1: So we're driving along uh, Airfield And uh, we've just passed loads of sheep In a field um, And now we're driving between Two solar p- Fields of solar panels Is that right?
2: Yeah, this is one of the largest um, Solar parks in the UK
1: it is huge, Is honestly huge. So it's in the middle of the, this sort of quite flat landscape for people who don't know the area, um, with the big undulating
2: hills and stuff.
1: Is it a road or is it a landing strip?
2: This is a landing strip, and it's actually a mile from uh, the bottom to the top here. So.
1: And there's, like, signs saying, be careful of prancing deer and that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, it's a bit of a wildlife sanctuary as well. We have deer here, there's lots of hares, pheasants the old seagull (laughs) there's
1: a crow over there (laughs) and then the buildings look so we've just passed two buildings and they look different ages Um, one of them is covered in polythene it looks like that's the
2: old control town Ah
1: so it's a historic site isn't it and it's yeah. it's got the kind of the infrastructure, remains of the infrastructure still
2: there yeah it was 1940s it was built for the RAF so and they've owned it up until 1979 when the science museum took over
1: we're now so we're still driving next to the uh, solar panel um field if that gives you some perspective of how large it is um and we're now approaching a collection of buildings which is is this what you're calling engineering
2: yep so we have the engineering building here which is where our labs are currently and again it's an old ref uh workshop for vehicles so makes a quite good lab for large objects.
1: <laughs> is it normally more windy than this?
2: Oh, yeah. There's the um, Bath University's Hive project, so materials testing. Uh, that building there is where they used to hang the silk parachutes to dry.
1: So it's quite nice, we're walking through. Um Grassy gardens, really, isn't it? It's, there's roads, there's uh, driveways and roads and stuff, but there's also hedges and trees and little yes. fences and stuff going through a adorable gate. So
2: this is where I have a uh, large objects lab, we have a small objects lab, and a paper lab and an uh, analysis room.
1: So, we've just gone into the engineering building in through a side door, um, and Simon's gone to turn off the alarm system. And it's a huge space.
2: So, yeah, this is about nine metres wide by 26 metres wide, uh, length. So, we have a one tonne gantry crane that runs the whole length.
1: Think hangar warehouse if you're not familiar with this kind of building. Um, and next to me, there's um a large metal rod attached to the gantry with straps. so a, think padded straps <laughs> <laughs> and,
2: and that's an x-ray machine so our uh, gantry crane does come in quite handy i don't know the full weight of it yet but the weighing beams are there to uh weigh it
1: <gasps> oh can we do that now
2: yeah we can do that now yeah
1: so simon you've got a page of stats and interesting facts about the site what information do you have for us about the site
2: well, it was built by the RAF in 1940 as uh, an airfield or maintenance airfield. So it's 545 acres. That's the, huge. Yeah, it's very large. Yeah, with three runways. So the one that we just drove down was a mile long. And, and the, there's three of them. Yeah, there's three. There's um, seven hangars. So SMG took over the uh, site in 1979, and we uh, we've been storing the largest of the objects of the Science Museum Group's collections uh, since then. And we also have the library and archives on site as well.
1: Of the whole of the Science Museum Group?
2: Yep. So we have 35,000 3D objects, considered (laughs) medium to large objects. And there's 500,000 2D objects, so uh, paintings, library and archives. I'll correct myself there. We have nine aircraft hangars. I
1: love month. that you have to keep track of all the buildings that you have to work in. That's crazy.
2: Two of them, we um, one of them's not in use at the moment. Right. Uh, one of them's actually hired out for uh, other museums to oh, right. store objects in. Um,
1: which other museums are there?
2: Museum of London.
1: Oh, yeah. cool. <laughs> okay.
2: The ninth building is an all-purpose built store, uh, which was built in 1994. That's environmentally controlled.
1: Oh my god! So he's just unhooked some massive chains for this gantry.
2: Do you mind holding? God, a chain?
1: No, it's fine. Yeah. What do I have to do?
2: Just hold that there. Like just that. hold it. Yep. Okay.
1: So it's coming off the ground and it's perfectly balanced. Yeah. How did took, you do that?
2: That took me some time getting that <laughs> <laughs> the um, weight distribution. uh, Yeah, could you hold that chain as well? Got
1: it, got it. So think huge yellow beams and lots of cogs and wheels and heavy chains and essentially a large metal tube with some green padded straps on it, which are dangling it, basically. Um, And what we're doing is uh, identifying how heavy it is.
2: Yeah, here we have some industrial weighing beams. So these will weigh up to two tons. What? Yeah. So those are yeah, kind of general sizes we're dealing with here.
1: So we're releasing the weight now onto the weighing scales.
2: That's the weight off that now. All right. so that's 191 kilograms. So here we have our small objects lab. So we do have some small objects you can pick them up and put them on the table
1: so we're standing, it's a a large space with an opening in the middle and there's sort of workshop equipment around the side, an air abrasive machine this huge thing covered in Tyvek
2: we have um, the Nederman extraction uh, fume extraction arms so in both sides of the lab and um, smaller portable ones if you're working anywhere else
1: off we go where are we going now?
2: we'll go past D2 is uh, where we have the library and archives, our uh, hemp store, and the giant walk-in freezer. Oh my god.
1: <laughs> Roller shutter doors.
2: Yeah. Off. Wind. Wow! You can hear the uh, <gasps> big walk-in freezer humming away there.
1: And that's the freezer. Wow!
2: objects currently waiting to go in there.
1: So they're polythene-wrapped carriages, aren't they? Uh,
2: here, outside the um, freezer, yeah, these have been um, past treated already. Uh-huh.
1: So we're in a massive hangar, and there's some like big white marquee tents to our left-hand side. Um, a goods lift ahead of us, and yeah, on our right-hand side, we've got a um, uh, holothene-wrapped objects, and uh, is that a shipping container? Is that the freezer? That's
2: the freezer, yeah. It's a large shipping container. And half of the hangar is given over to the library and archives. So oh, a huge brilliant. huge space in there. Uh, the hangar's about 400 metres square, so yeah. It's a 200 metres square library. Wow. And archives.
1: <coughs> What's in the tent?
2: Uh, buffer zones.
1: Buffer zones. Oh, I'm peeking in. I'm peeking in. It's just a big empty tent.
2: Oh, it's empty at the moment, yeah. What's normally in there? Um, Objects that come uh, in, so new acquisitions, objects waiting to go out, large objects.
1: (laughs) They're big marquees.
2: (laughs) So we just drove about 1.6 miles to the other side of the site, to D4. So this is where we have
1: so d4 is the large 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 object store is that right and it's a big hangar again it's crazy driving up and then parking up next to the tiny person-sized door that sits like in the middle of this mass expanse of wall of your store (laughs) So we're going into the sort of human entrance, aren't we? Oh my god. (gasps) In you go. (gasps) Oh my god. (gasps) It's huge!
2: So that's a lucky super constellation.
1: The big plane?
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) Sorry, that's that's, (laughs) the least in the know about aircraft. So, describe what we're seeing, Simon.
2: So, we have right in front of you, you have the uh, constellation. So, this was. It's a plane! It's an aircraft, yeah. <laughs> so this was the uh, Rolling Stones Pacific Tour bus in the 1970s. <laughs> what? And then there's larger aircraft dotted around it, but dwarfed by the yeah. constellation DC 3, de Havilland Dove, and multiple vehicles. So, we have racks full of. Push bikes, that sort of motorcycles and freestanding cars, engines so yeah, it's, they all look quite small in here but... They do! <laughs> but they are big And so we're going walk around
1: Yeah So yeah, to our left is the rack of bicycles of different ages um, strapped to pallets Some buses, is that a fire engine?
2: Yeah, there's a Dennis fire engine, a telephone box TV protection van
1: Oh, my God. Now we're walking under a plane wing. Cash.
2: Under the conservation wing. In front we have the de Havilland Dragon. And the de Havilland Dragon Rapid. Another plane. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's nice.
1: So we're standing now roughly in the middle, I suppose, of this gigantic space. Yep. And you forget, I'm forgetting to realise how big it is. And then there's just another aircraft just... That barely takes up any of the space yeah. that you've got available to you. A
2: large traction engine, the Empress of India. Um, we have two rows of cars here. So, uh, one of my favourite parts of the museum is a rack 12 metres high full of motorcycles. <laughs> <laughs>
1: How do you get these up there?
2: So, we, At the end, we have our reach truck. A one and a half ton truck with a, uh, which can go right up to the 12 meter, pluck them off the top. So, yeah, uh, we're all trained on four cleft trucks here. So, it's the only way uh, we can get round, Uh, well, basically, storing the objects and retrieving them.
1: Yeah. So, Simon's just opened the door of a vehicle um, to check the moth trap that's sitting inside it. Do you tend to get moth infestations in your vehicles?
2: Uh, not generally. Um, yeah, we've been quite good for a while, but it's good to keep on top of the uh, ones in here because there's been uncontrolled mm-hmm. environmental space gaps in the old hangar doors and things like that.
1: So we're just driving from D4, the large objects store, and we're driving past um, building one, which is huge, it is absolutely huge, that's going to be the small object store and new lab space and stuff
2: 80% of the collection is going to be the Science Museum Group's collection will be stored in there Wow! uh, small to large objects
1: and we're going to have a look at it when we get upstairs in this other building that we're sitting outside of A1 yeah so
2: this is A1 this is um, built in 1994 so this is our environmentally controlled building all the other hangars are, as you imagine, non-environmentally controlled at all. <laughs> drafty. Yeah, drafty. Yeah, they have between 80 and 100% relative humidity with fluctuations uh, mirroring that of the external conditions here in Rawton. So yeah, this is split. We have um, all the ground floor for our medium to large objects. And upstairs we have some welfare facilities and our textile store.
1: So this building is more of a sort of set of rooms, isn't it? Though this is a huge, huge room, it's actually quite small com- in comparison to what we've just been in. <laughs>
2: this is the outer loading bay. It uh, works as an airlock system ah. to the inner loading bay so you can't open the, um, both doors at the same time. Either side of the building, we have A1, which is our mobile racking for the medium-sized objects on small pallets. The other side is A2, confusingly called. <laughs> In A1, we have A1, A2, and A3. Oh,
1: great. Well, <laughs> no that clears that so, up. <laughs>
2: no. So on the A2 store, we have our custom-built large pallets, so they're up to two tonnes.
1: Oh my god wow
2: so it's racked to the full height of the building 12 meters it is a system that allows us to gain twice as much uh, object space as a normal static rack as they all each rack is a mobile unit which has its Good and bad points.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I'll just describe what happened there. Um, A roller shutter went up and the lights went on. And we are now standing in front of the most compressed large object storage I have ever seen. If you imagine like the kind of roller racking that many of us will be familiar with in libraries and archives and stuff. This is huge. And everything is on pallets. And it's so compressed and so efficient. This is such an efficient way of storing.
2: So, yeah, it is great if you can double your space. Like I said, it does have its drawbacks. You'll need um, a very narrow aisle forklift truck to access the objects. Right. As in other mobile racking units, annual inspections. So it is quite costly. Doubling the space here wasn't really necessary for the Science Museum. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're not short on space. Uh-huh. Yeah. so it's been a good learning curve for this right so but yeah like the other buildings the racking has an end of life that's why we're starting to explore right the methods. i see. so in building one
1: i'm looking at this thinking this is storage goals but so much work and expense has yeah, gone into this has not it
2: expensive um, method of racking uh i'll open up one of the yes items. please are kind of medium-sized mm-hmm. objects. Fridge freezers, cookers, aero engines, huge computers. We'll have, a, we'll have a look down. It's amazing! You can see the amount of engineering that goes into uh, a rack like this. There you go.
1: Wow! Now we can enter. So <laughs> this giant compressed cube of museum objects just parted for us like the Red Sea. <laughs> and when it stopped, it just it just stopped. Nothing moved. There was maybe a ti- the tiniest bit of wobble, but yeah. everything on here is very stable. so stable. And w- which is just as well, considering that how, I mean, what do you think is the heaviest or what's the, the weight range, do you think, of objects that are, are on here?
2: Uh, well, the pallets will take up to a ton, but the wow. uh, racks themselves—they're uh, thirteen tons.
1: Can we walk down?
2: Yeah. So if anything interesting. Wow. Oh, wow. engines.
1: Everything is interesting.
2: <laughs> and fridge a fridge freezer.
1: freezer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking out for fridge. things that I might have put on pallets.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so we're still walking. Dexter. Still walking.
2: Dentist's chair. Ooh.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And we've just about got to the end. Wow.
2: Shall we uh, have a look at the forklift?
1: What are we going to do on the forklift?
2: Uh, We'll take an object off the uh, rack.
1: (gasps) How exciting.
2: There's a different type of forklift we have here for this particular racking, because it's uh, a very narrow aisle. So again, uh, another cost to it, because it requires a different license.:
1: Rewrite Oh right.
2: Um, to the normal uh, forklifts the reach trucks we have on site. The whole cab goes up as well, so <gasps> it allows you to uh, more easily access the top of the rack. So.
1: And see what you're doing as well. Decyclple has climbed into the driver's seat. I'm not allowed because you need training.:
2: I need to take an object off the rack for a loan, so I'll get it out now.
1: pivot the wheels are i don't know what to call them officially but it means you can essentially spin on the spot so he's just backed it into the right position and now he's backing down the aisle in this sort of very narrow kind of vehicle with a huge tower on it and forks and i'm staying a safe distance back imagine heavy lifting equipment and flashing orange lights He's up! He's going up! So as you can imagine, your object locations have to be really thorough because otherwise you've got to be at 12 metres high and trying to search for your object. Object acquired! This is perfect for audio, as I'm sure you'll agree. That was done with absolute minimum of fuss. (laughs)
2: my object down. I'll condition and put that next week.
1: So, how long did you? How long did it take you to feel comfortable with this? And is this like This kind is this kind yeah. of normal equipment for warehouse use? Uh,
2: yeah, you'll find the narrow aisle trucks and the pickers in Amazon warehouses and Tesco's. It probably, it took me about say three, four months to get fully uh-huh, comfortable. Yeah. We're not taking objects off here at rapid paces like they do in Amazon. We do take no, our yeah. uh our, our absolute most of the time upstairs to the textile store but we can get a good vantage point from there to see building one
1: brilliant oh so there's a little cozy little kitchen up here in this building oh oh it's a tiny room by comparison but huge (laughs) also oh lovely think aisles and aisles of hung costume covered oh wow and sealed bags of asbestos warning what what is asbestos in the um in the garment?
2: It'll, there'll be um, a firefighter's uniform.
1: Ah. So,
2: uh, sealed and bagged. Oh,
1: and rolled textiles. What's down here? Mm. Oh, timetables and. Yeah. Diagrams and stuff. Bits of embroidery, but huge variety, isn't it?
2: Yeah, or well, your area of expert. <laughs> <laughs> lumpy bits of metal. <laughs> <That's
1: mine.
2: laughs> don't get to come up here very often. A view of building one from the doorway here. Wow. Science Museum Group, home of collections. So it'll be 80% of the collections stored in there. 91 metres wide, 289 metres long. So that gives us a square of 26, 000 meters of 26,000 metres squared with wow. a 9,000 metre squared uh, mezzanine. Wow. So this is where Blythe House will be rehomed. And also other facilities in there will have purpose-built objects lab, paper and textiles lab. I'm quite looking forward to my objects lab. <laughs> i have a five-ton gantry crane. So wow. <laughs> um, which will be remote controlled, so no no hefting, know, hefting on chains hefting anymore. Chains, yeah. In comparison, you know, uh, really good space over in the engineering building, but again, yeah, it's so a sort of a retrofitted old mm-hmm. REF yeah. maintenance building. So yeah, this is going to be it's going to be fantastic. We'll have collections access here for up to about fifteen thousand visitors a year. So that's public open days, mm-hmm. um, school visits, and we'll continue our collections researchers as well
1: brilliant <laughs> brilliant well thank you so much simon for showing no worries, me around yeah. it's amazing so we're really privileged to have you uh, allow us to come in thank, <laughs> thank you very you. much
0: all right thanks for anyway that sounds like a really amazing place to visit by the way
1: so i actually had a, an hour and a half of recording time that oh I my it down to yeah. 10 minutes um that okay, gets well done thanks <laughs> you're very lucky to work there i know it's got it's,
2: quirks, yeah, it's great yeah it's, really it's a really fantastic yeah. place to
0: work oh i suppose so- something else to mention is like we haven't really gone into it but um because we talked about how industrial stuff can sometimes be built into buildings yeah mm. but of course sometimes the building with the industrial stuff in it is actually the collection if you say what i mean like working uh, mills yeah. and working yeah, uh that yeah, sort of yeah, thing yeah, like yeah. that yeah. so you know i know that that's working objects mm-hmm. and like in fact a whole working setting yeah. uh, which is really cool but just shout out to the people who are on those because that's a really bad and mm-hmm. very very much full time mm-hmm. job mm-hmm. well done for keeping those things going <laughs> yeah. and keeping yeah. them safe and just doing amazing amazing work like, that's yeah. so cool when you see that yeah. stuff I like I live for going to places like that it's so cool yeah Coffton Beam Engine's good yeah
2: good,
0: so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so where can people go if they need a bit more like guidance and information about uh, working with these things
2: yeah, there's several guidelines out there. Um, also, the Big Stuff Conference. Oh, nice. Has, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good fun. That they have all their papers published online.
0: Excellent. So I'll
2: put a link to the... Yeah, absolutely. ...to the uh, website on there. Mm-hmm. Um, there has been the uh, Museum and Galleries larger objects. Oh, yeah. Conservation guidelines. From
0: the 90s, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah.
2: They're quite old now. Recently been... The Association of British Transport and Engineering's uh, Museums have brought out um, an updated guideline, which oh, is going excellent. to be yeah. more of a live document. So they're going to be putting it in case studies. I think that's available online as well, Oh good. as so. a free download, or you can buy the book. Yeah, there's some really good information in there. And um, oh, there's a really good um, book by David Morris as well. I oh, recommend nice. everyone read uh, "Time Capsule Fighter."
1: Oh, yeah.
0: So
2: that's about his um, the conservation of the Vought Corsair at the Fleet Air Arm Museum.
0: Right, so we've talked about loads of different types of big objects. Uh, we talked about sculpture and obviously science and industry and also vehicles, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. including military ones. And then we did think of fossils in the end, which is great. Oh, and, yeah, yeah, And yeah, agricultural things. Agriculture,
1: which, yeah.
0: Yeah. So actually, we did span quite a few things there, which is great. And the architectural bits. Uh, something we didn't talk about was monuments and sites Mm. which is also a type of large heritage that people do look after Um, but that tends to be much more much more kind of looking after the landscape around Mm. the monuments and that sort of thing but you know it's stuff like same with working with buildings it can be about things like stopping erosion and Mm -hmm. all that stuff Uh, and there was a talk that I went to recently at at the Museums Association exhibition bit which was about um, a building in Scotland which they're trying to look after and they're essentially building a kind of a cube around to stop it decay The
1: Macintosh. That's correct. That's Uh, going to entirely... Yeah, I have opinions about that.
0: Yeah, no, I'm... I'm, (laughs) I'm,
1: I I can tell. (laughs) I can absolutely tell. (laughs) Ashley, do you you want to get into it? I feel like the conservation of buildings is a whole episode topic on its oh, own. It, it absolutely is. Mm-hmm. But why would you change is. the entire vista? Like, why I know, <laughs> okay. I know, it's narrow no, rating. No, I get it. Yes, but no, I why, know. why why it's like I know and this this is oh. the kind of
0: this is the kind of discussions that people are having, especially when it's like a big ancient monuments, that sort of thing. Because yeah. they they have the same kind of issues. Mm-hmm. Um and this was especially something that um, I looked at years ago in Malta for example where yeah. they've had to build basically um coastal erosion shelters around old temples and stuff like that. Yeah. and it is yeah. one of those things that it is a way of managing change sure but then what are the kind of trade-offs for that and mm. all that stuff right so it is super interesting to talk about and yes there should totally be an episode on that <laughs> uh, but i'm glad you have opinions so yeah we didn't really talk that much about monuments and buildings but then that's kind of a different ballpark yeah. as well but mm-hmm. it is very much part of like working with huge things mm-hmm. because yeah kind of massive mm-hmm. but yeah so i think we've covered quite in quite a few bits there and thanks very much to Simon for joining us. No, thank you for having me both you. <laughs> thanks for the
2: pizza.
0: Today I'm reviewing the Conservation of Sculpture Parks, edited by Sajita Sonara and Andrew Thorne, published in twenty eighteen by Archetype Publications. This book is a collection of fourteen papers presented at the International Spark Sculpture Parks, get it conference in Croatia in twenty fifteen, plus a write up of the roundtable discussion at the event. And it really covers a lot of ground for a publication that doesn't outstay its welcome. Its focus is sometimes more about management and less about intervention, but we'll get into that in a bit. For the material geeks out there, I'm pleased to report that a wide variety of materials are covered. Wood, metals, ceramic, stone, concrete, composites, etc, etc. Something I love about this book is that the case studies within comes from a really broad range of places geographically, and thus deals with a variety of climates and challenges. The papers are from Poland, Croatia, Slovenia, Austria, Italy, Spain, Denmark, the UK, Australia and the US. These sculpture parks can be found in urban and rural settings, in forests and deserts, inland and on the coast. And something that delighted me in particular is that it included a cemetery and a more broadly defined landscape park as well, which expanded the scope a little from just carefully curated contemporary art and eccentric artists' indulgences to areas of more monumental nature. Because sculpture parks have been established since around the mid-1900s, most of the sculptures covered in the book are relatively modern. But the challenges are widely applicable to anyone who cares for something that's kept outdoors. Many conservators have at least some sort of lump of outdoor heritage, whether that's public art or some old pieces of industrial equipment or architectural rubble that won't fit in a store. And don't flinch like that. I know it's important rubble. Anyway, back to the content. Some of these papers are a little slim on the conservation details, referring only vaguely to cleaning methods and appropriate materials. And something I found frustrating throughout the chapters was the tendency to keep reiterating that we made the correct decision here, please don't be mad, and sorry we couldn't use something more conservation-friendly, we're not able to get there here. Guys, it's okay. I don't know who hurt you, but if you talk me through a decision-making process, I'm not going to be writing angry letters about using epoxy. However, I am pleased to report that the odd paper does give a good level of treatment detail and there's even a couple of authors in there who are happy to talk about their rigorous material testing. So don't despair. I'd also like to give a tiny high five to the one author who came across as positively feisty and happily waved their, hey, we have to use really hardcore materials because it's outdoors people flag, which I really loved. But I shan't name drop them just in case they feel awkward about that. As you might expect, the common problems encountered throughout the book are related to things being displayed outdoors and with no environmental control whatsoever. Aside from your usual problems with corrosion, cracking, warping, insects and the odd spot of vandalism, my favourites include ferocious fungi and willful woodpeckers. Speaking of damage, I quite like that the book covers enough different angles that we get to read about the polar opposite ways of handling touch. Some parks found visitor touch so damaging that they started educating people about the damage being caused, while others view public-tactile interaction as the very purpose of the park's existence. I also really liked that the parks can range from not hoity-toity, but very arty and serious to completely playful, and I really, really enjoyed that. Because of the contemporary nature of these works of art, there's a lot of artist dialogue in this book and the negotiations between conservators and artists don't always work well. Some do, of course, but there are a lot of questions about the level of intervention, artist intent, choice of materials, and what will happen when the artists are no longer around to be consulted. Some authors sound more exasperated than others, and I had a rueful chuckle at some of the chapters, where the conservators clearly felt the artists should have taken material stability into account before creating the artwork, but vision won over intent. Something I took away from this book was that the conservation profession is treated very differently across the world. It's not always conservatives carrying out these assessments of the artworks, and some even expressed that they were being undercut by admittedly skilled stonemasons or very much not skilled happy-go-lucky amateurs, which resulted in work being done by the lowest bidder and with very little input from conservation professionals. But I think that's probably a rant for another day. Another thing I really appreciated about this book was how some of the papers address difficult topics like political tension and public disapproval. Art stirs up a lot of emotions, and it's not surprising that in countries experiencing a surge in right-wing policies, some sculptures are very much under fire and at risk of removal. This type of disassociation and destruction should be taken just as seriously as wind and water ingress, and as conservators we must do our best to protect heritage for everyone, and not just the powers that be. This paperback has 192 pages, full-color illustrations, and costs 39 pounds 50 p from the publisher's website, or around 80 US dollars for American customers. If you care for anything that's kept outdoors, I'd definitely give this a read.
3: Dear Jane, I have a chance to go to Florence the place where conservation really took off after the 1966 flood. Is there some way, some place, where one can see examples of what techniques developed there, what worked, what didn't, and so on? The history of conservation surely ought to be of interest to someone beside me. Dear Inquirer who's going to Florence, First, may I say how sorry I am how long it's taken me to answer. Of all the seaward inquiries... I have ever been given this, has proved to be the most fun, most challenging, and most amount of work to try to get you an answer. But I have recruited the absolute fantastic network of C word aunties and uncles to help me, as this was well beyond my expertise. So, in that quest, I asked two people to help me Fiona McAllister and Barbara Catania. And I'm just going to give you a synopsis of the advice that they've given. So Fiona McAllister said that back in 2016, there was a lot of exhibits. So there wasn't a lot of interest. It was the 50th anniversary then. And there was quite a lot of events, not all of which are still available. There was a film by Zeffirelli and that was shown at um, the AICCAC Joint Conference in Montreal in 2016. So you might be able to find that film before you go as part of your research. You may have already gone and I do apologise. But Fiona wasn't aware of any permanent displays in Florence about the impact of the conservation techniques in and of themselves. But there are things like plaques around the city that you could go and see. Um, for example, the ones that show how the high the waters were near Duomo. But the other thing that um, Fiona recommended that was I spoke to Barbara Cataneo from the Biblioteca Nazionale Centrale di Firenze. Because this, the National Library... Um, really keeps the memory alive of the flood in terms of the way that they plan exercises, do their emergency preparedness planning, have developed and researched treatment techniques and um, share that information in the community in which they work. Both um, Fiona and Barbara recommend that you go and see some of the critical items from the flood, one of which is the C Sim, oh, Simabu a Crucifix. I looked up so many of the words and forgot to look that one up. Um, and that was the one that a lot of people discussed about whether or not you, the, the level of conservation was correct or not. Um, that's on display in the Museo di Santa Croce. That, uh, I have links from all of these things, not that from me, but from my wonderful helpers, which I will pass on to Jenny and Chloe for the show notes. Now, Barbara is also recommending that you visit the National Library, the Opeficio della Pietro Dure, which is where she works, and the Gabinetto ZP Viesu. The National Library is I think seems to be coming across as the central place. They had more than hundred thousand items damaged the floods. And the National Library then researched lots of different methods for treatment. They looked at ethylene oxide, ETO fumigation, drying techniques, heat, tobacco, things that were used at the heat that used at the tobacco and ceramic factories such as sawdust and talc and they evaluated quite a lot of those. They found, in my own experience of a tiny flood, was that although freezing is what is recommended, it's very hard to get hold of in a flood because of problems with electricity supply and everybody else wanting freezers. So what really Barbara is pointing you to is to go along to the library and see some of the, the work that's been in practice. And one of the issues that she's describing that they still have problems with is the limp venom bindings. These were common in the 1500s but they, they really struggled through the flood. They had Christopher Clarkson in and he's given them, he, he came up with a new design for these um, bindings and they are working on those now on the 1500s and 1600s books. On the plus side from the floods, and we do like to look at optimism, is that at the time of the floods, some young conservators were trained up, Peter Walters and Anthony Cairns get a mention, and they um, have really big, be- Develop their skills and become experts and highly proficient in their field and become great masters in conservation. Now I've been talking all about the conservation that has been done and you can visit the conservation labs um, which is fantastic and you can even watch a documentary to see what the conservation lab looked like back in 1968 which is on YouTube. So again I'll be passing the link to the wonderful Seaward team and that will be available to you. So the other place that Barbara Catania recommended was the Gabinetto G.P. Visu, an archive of relevant cultural personalities from the 19th and 20th century, which was also flooded. And they recovered quite a lot of paper and photographic materials, and she recommends that you visit them. She also recommends, and um, it does look beautiful because I've been looking at it on the YouTube videos, the Operficio della Pietro Dure, which is where a lot of things like metals and sculptures. And again, this is where the um, the Simabue crosses that um, Fiona recommended that you went to see. Uh, and there's all sorts of things um, like doors um, from the cathedral by G- Ghiberti. And there was quite a lot of other things there to go and see. So I will pass on the extensive notes. I wish you well in your exploration of Venice. It's, I'm sure you're going to have or have had an absolutely fantastic time. And I'd just like to say how inspired I am to be a member of a conservation community where I can write to all sorts of people saying, hello, <laughs> you've never met me I have met Fiona before, but would you help me with this question? And the generosity and kindness from one conservator to another is genuinely inspirational. I hope it's been helpful. Over and out.
0: And as usual, we welcome your comments, questions and corrections. This time we've had a couple of people write in. Uh, We've got a message from the ICON Book and Paper Group that the Fred Behrman Research Grant opens for applications on December 1st. It's open to any ICON members, so long as it's related to books, paper and archives in some way. They're especially open to more innovative applications. So definitely get your thinking caps on if you're doing anything with books and paper. The next one is from some conservation colleagues in Canada. Uh, There's a fundraiser to start a reconciliation working group within the Canadian Association for Conservation of Cultural Property. They are currently raising money for a consultation process and a launch event for the group. It's a really worthwhile course. We're going to link to their fundraising page. And basically, it sounds amazing. So this is how we are working more closely with source communities in Canada. And I'm really thrilled to see this sort of thing being started. The funds raised will go towards the travel for consultations with First Nations, Inuit and metis I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing that correctly, organisations and cultural centres across Canada, Uh, organisational workshops and training events, translation services, ways of collecting feedback... Online meeting software for efficient group meetings, paying a researcher to assist a group, honoraria and gifts of appreciation for speakers and consultants and online training fees. There is more detail on the fundraising page, uh, but this is amazing. And can I just say shout out to these people for actually paying people they want to consult with. You need money to make these sorts of things work. So please, please, please do check out their fundraiser. It looks really good. And I cannot wait to see this thing take off. Thanks, guys. You're an absolute inspiration. And finally, we have a correction from Evelyn. In our last episode about diversity, we said that uh, Young Canada Works is wholly funded by the government. That was not correct. Uh, Young Canada Works is a program that's asking for 25 to 50% of wages to be uh, funded by the employers. So that's just a correction there. Thanks so much for getting in touch, Evelyn. As usual, if you've got anything on your mind, do let us know, tweet us, email us, reach out in any way you can. Thanks so much, guys. If you're enjoying The C-Word and would like to support our work, then please consider becoming one of our patrons. For as little as $1 per month, you can help us keep our episodes online and more of them coming. Patreon helps us meet our regular costs for the show, and also to plan ahead so we know roughly how much of a monthly budget we've got. That's super helpful when you're trying to do something special like buy a better microphone or save up to go to a special event. Your support also helps keep us free of advertisements. In return our supporters get access to our archive of extended episodes, which you can only access on our Patreon page. Yeah, for that one dollar a month you get a little extra audio enjoyment. We've crushed the numbers and it's about ten percent extra content on a regular basis. Well it's not bad for less than a cup of coffee, eh? If supporting us sounds like something you'd like to do, then head over to patreon.com slash the C word and join our bunch of absolute champions. Thanks for listening we're The Sea Word and you've been listening to Simon Stevens Chloe Rumsey and me Jenna Mathiason join us next time for an episode about knowing not to in the meantime check out our website at theseaword.show tweet us at the Podcast, or simply email us on theseawordpodcast at gmail.com the intro and outro music is Spring by Didi Music, used under a Creative Commons attribution license additional music and sound effects by Callum Robertson this has been a wooden dice production. Welcome to the Sea World The Conservatives Podcast. Are you are you gonna giggle? Or are you gonna giggle? No, I
1: was I was gonna slap um. my tea noisily and you <laughs> know what? F it slurp your tea. Everyone has a sip.